to get started. Uh, Let's pray as we open up this morning. Oh God, we thank you for your word. Um, We thank you for this subject that we're uh, dealing with in this series, uh, the sacraments, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. Uh, Lord, I pray that um, as we continue to deal with these issues, that you'd give us clarity of thought, and you'd help us to understand your word, and that we would be faithful to it. In the holy and precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right. Well, we are, of course, continuing our series on the sacraments this morning, continuing to look at the uh, historical development of the doctrine of baptism. And last week, we were dealing quite a bit with the Lutheran understanding of baptism. And you'll notice that one of the things that we talked about last week is that in the Lutheran understanding of baptism, you have this sort of strange reality that baptism is something that's fundamentally different for infants than it is for adults, right? You remember that for infants in Lutheran theology, baptism gives the gift of faith, and it gives it every time. But for adults, faith is a prerequisite, and so baptism is not something that gives faith to adults. Rather, baptism is something that confirms the faith of adults. It becomes, as one of my Lutheran uh, fellow theologians or whatever I want to call him, a good friend of mine who studies theology who's Lutheran, as he put it, baptism for adults is a sign and a seal. So you see the Lutherans have a a sort of a reformed understanding of baptism for adults, but then for infants it becomes something that actually gives the gift of faith. So you see it's it's very different for infants than it is for adults. And um, that's something that the reformed tradition is going to have to wrestle with and deal with. So we talked about Lutheran baptism last week. Now today what I want to do is we're going to talk about Reformed baptism and some of the distinctives of our tradition and our understanding of how baptism works and what it is and so on. But um, we're also maybe, if we have time, going to talk a little bit about the Baptist view today. And if we don't get to it, that's fine. We've got next week, and so we'll deal with it there. And uh, there's a lot of interesting stuff um, to deal with in in, uh, the Baptist view and try to understand that. So... The Reformed view of baptism, that's what we want to look at this morning. And you'll remember that last week we sort of uh, dipped our toes in the water of the Reformed view as I was explaining just by way of introduction. That one of the things that makes the Reformed view distinctive from many and probably most all other doctrines of baptism and other understandings of baptism in Christian traditions is our serious use of the Old Testament. Um, When we talk about the Baptist view next week, I'll I'll emphasize and I'll show you that for Baptists, they want to make a very, very sharp division between the Old Testament and the New Testament, especially dispensational Baptists, those who see the story of Israel and the story of the church as two separate stories in history. And so Baptists like to see a very strong separation between the Old and New Testaments, And uh, Lutherans and Roman Catholics don't see quite as strong of a disconnect between Old and New Testaments, but it is still there. And so they always give priority to New Testament and sort of set the Old Testament aside. At least that's what they do in practice. They won't say that that's what they do, but that's what happens if you read their treatments on it. And so one of the things that makes the Reformed view, our view, the Presbyterian view of baptism distinct, is our very serious use of the Old Testament. And so when we transition from the historical part of baptism to looking at the biblical text of baptism, we're going to look a lot at the Old Testament because there's lots of Old Testament passages that have a lot to teach us about 
uh, the sacraments in general and baptism in particular. Okay, so that's one of the things that makes our view distinctive, our serious use of the Old Testament. The second thing that makes our view distinctive, really, is covenant theology. And we sort of, I really didn't get into this at all last week, so that's what I want to get into today, is our understanding of covenant in Scripture. And the thing that makes talking about covenant theology difficult today is because it just doesn't play a huge part in general evangelical Christianity. Okay? If you turn on you know, faith radio, you're listening to the preachers on the radio and so on, they'll talk about Jesus, right? They'll talk about being saved by faith and all that good stuff, but they don't understand it in light of covenant because covenant just isn't a part of general evangelical Christianity. It's only a part of the Reformed tradition. We're the ones who really take it seriously and try to understand everything the scripture has to say through that lens. And we do that not because we're trying to impose a particular system on the Bible, but rather because the Bible itself presents itself as a covenant document. And it orders all of God's activity in history through the grid of covenant. Okay, So covenant is really important. If you don't understand covenant, you're not going to understand the inner workings of redemptive history. You're not going to understand how the sacraments in general work. You're not going to understand a lot of things like that. So, yes, Robert. Do you intend to define covenant? If yes. Not, if not, can you do so, and can you do so in the context of the other side? Yes, sir. I'm going to give a definition in just a second here. Yeah, so uh, Robert was asking about a definition for covenant. We're going to get into that. All I'm trying to do right now is establish the importance of what a covenant is and why we need it for understanding Scripture. All right, so having done that, now let's talk about what a covenant is. Let me just ask you, I'm looking for feedback here. You hear the word covenant. What do you think of when you hear that word covenant? What kind of definition comes to your mind? Agreement, okay, yeah, agreement. That's a, a good, very solid and simple definition. That's a good one to keep in your, in your mind. A covenant is an agreement. What else comes to your mind? It involves more than one person. All right, it, it involves more than one person. And that's sort of expanding what an agreement is, right? Because I guess you could say I made an agreement with myself, but that's not really what we mean when we talk about a covenant. We're talking about an agreement between two parties, Two or more parties. Right? So a covenant is an agreement between two or more parties. All right, good. That's what we've got so far. What else could we say about covenant? What else comes to your mind? There are a whole bunch of them. A whole bunch of them? A whole bunch of what? Covenants. In Scripture? Like covenant of works. Right. Covenant of grace. Covenant of whatever. All right, so when you think of the term covenant, what comes to your mind is all of the particular situations in which God gave a covenant in Scripture, right? Like you said, the covenant of works, the covenant of grace, and then you can distinguish even more in the covenant of grace between the covenant with Noah, the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with Moses, the covenant with David, the new covenant, and so on. Right, so you think of those particulars. Yes? Right. Very, very good. So stipulations. That's another aspect of covenant, right? Conditions. 
things that have to be uh, required in order for the agreement to work. So conditions or stipulations, that's another really important aspect of covenant. Now, what else do you guys think of? We're going to put all this together in just a second. But what else do you think of when you think of covenant? What else is there? I'm sorry? A bond. Okay. Yeah, that's kind of similar to agreement, but I do like your term bond because a bond emphasizes something more than just like, you know, a contract, right? This is a very intimate agreement. In fact, um, one theologian calls a covenant a bond in blood. And what he means by that is that this bond in the biblical covenants and just covenants in the ancient Near East in general are so important and so strong and so powerful that they actually are bonds of life and death. Meaning that a covenant in the ancient world was something where if you broke the conditions, your life was required of you. You actually were able to be executed if you broke the covenant. Whereas if you kept the covenant, you were able to live. Okay, So that's bond is a good word there because it emphasizes a stronger thing than, than just like a contract, like what we think about today. Okay, very good. Anything else? All right, well, I've got a couple of other things that we could potentially add to this definition of covenant, right? We want to have a very rich understanding of it so that we can understand the various pieces of Scripture and how they're going to be put together. So here's how I defined a covenant. And by the way, there's a lot of ways you could define it, but what I'm trying to do is, is bring in a lot of different aspects of what a covenant is. So a covenant is a binding agreement between two parties with promises, conditions, blessings, curses, and signs. And I'll repeat that. A covenant is a binding agreement between two parties with promises, conditions, blessings, curses, and signs. And when I come up with this definition, it's not because I just decided one day this is what a covenant should be, right? This is what theologians have discussed, but it's also what theologians have seen in Scripture. Because in Scripture, when we see God institute a covenant with someone, like Abraham, or like Adam, or something like that, we see all of these elements present. We see that a covenant is between two parties. Right? Like what, like what um, Grant had just said. And it has promises, meaning that the covenant promises things. It says, if you keep this covenant, here's what you get. Here's your reward. Here's the thing that you receive. That's the promise. And I guess that's also the blessings. Uh, the conditions. Right? If, here are the things that you need to do in this agreement in order to receive the blessings. Those are the conditions. You have the blessings, which are some, somewhat close to the promises, only the blessings actually are the fulfillment of the promises. And then you've got curses, meaning if you break the covenant, if you violate the conditions that have been established in this covenant, then you reap upon yourself judgment. And in the ancient Near East, if you broke a covenant, really you're forfeiting your life. And the person who made the covenant with you can come and execute you. And can bring justice upon you. So that's the curses. And then finally you have signs. In the ancient Near East. Covenants and in scripture. Covenants have signs. That is they have visible. 
tangible, outward symbols that represent the truths of the covenant, the blessings, the curses, the promises, the parties, etc. So a covenant has, has parties, promises, conditions, blessings, curses, and signs. And this is exactly the kind of thing that we see, not only in Scripture, we see it in ancient Near East in general. If archaeologists have found all kinds of, of very interesting artifacts, documents, covenant documents, and so on, in the ancient Near East, that all bear witness to the same structure as Scripture. So Scripture is not unique in this fact. God is, is, in a certain sense, coming down, and he is expressing himself in the ways that people expressed themselves at the time the Old Testament was given. And so it's really quite amazing. This is the God accommodating himself to our human capacities and sort of acting in that way, which is pretty, pretty amazing. Okay, so a covenant is a binding agreement between two parties with all of these various pieces. Think with me for a second about um, the very first covenant that God made with man. What covenant was that? I didn't catch anything intelligible. Sorry, everyone spoke at once. All right, the covenant of works. That's right. The very first covenant that God made with man was called the covenant of works. Now, you're not going to find that term in Scripture. Right? There's nothing that says covenant of works in the Bible. This is a theological title. Right? We're just kind of like the word trinity. We're looking at the teaching of Scripture and assigning a particular title to it. And so the first covenant that God made with man was a covenant of works. Who did God make that covenant with? All right, Adam and all his posterity. That's right, Adam and all of his descendants. All right? So the covenant of works was made with Adam, which means it was established at creation, right? It was established with Adam in the Garden of Eden. Now, God makes this covenant. The parties of the covenant are God and man, or God and Adam specifically, okay? So those are the parties. Does anyone know what were the promises of this covenant? Eternal life, right. If Adam fulfilled the conditions, which we'll talk about in a second, then Adam would receive eternal life. All right? So you can, you can see here, there's a covenant happening. All right? So there's the promises. What are the conditions of the covenant? What did Adam have to do in order to earn this eternal life in the covenant of works? All right, that's all right. He had to obey God. That was the conditions. And what specifically, what, what specific condition does God give? He mentions one in particular, one, one negative condition, one thing he's not supposed to do specifically. Right, not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Right, so that's one thing that Adam wasn't supposed to do. But in general, you're right, he's supposed to obey God, obey the law of God written upon his heart. All right, so those are the conditions. If Adam obeys God perfectly then he will receive eternal life. And of course, the blessing is eternal life. That's what Adam receives. Curses. What, is, what happens to Adam if he disobeys God, if he doesn't fulfill the conditions? He dies, right? Death, and not just physical death, but eternal death, right? He merits upon himself divine judgment. He merits upon himself, really, hell. That's the curse if he fails to obey the covenant. All right, so we've got the parties, the promises, 
the conditions, the curses. What's the final piece of covenant that we've talked about? That's right, signs. Are there signs in the covenant of works? Any kind of physical, visible representation of something? Tree of life. Yeah, the tree of life. If you read Calvin's Institutes, John Calvin makes the point that the tree of life was the sacrament of the covenant of works. That is, it was the sign, the visible representation of the spiritual reality of what Adam would receive if he obeyed the covenant. Okay? All right, so now we've sort of traced out a little bit here the covenant of works. That's the first covenant that God made with man. Now, here's a question Did Adam fulfill this covenant? No, he didn't. No, he failed miserably. Right? He disobeyed the covenant. In fact, he did the one thing, the one specific thing that God told him not to do. He did not obey God. And so, like Grant had brought up a minute ago, the covenant of works was not just made with Adam himself, but it was made with Adam and all of his posterity, meaning Adam and all of his descendants. And so, when Adam sinned, It wasn't just that Adam reaped upon himself the curses of the covenant. But when Adam sinned, all of the curses of the covenant come upon him and all of his descendants, which is you and I. And so because Adam was the head of this covenant of works, he received upon himself the curses by breaking it, and therefore we receive the curses. And so we receive the imputation of the guilt of Adam's sin, as Paul talks about in the book of Romans. All right, so that's the covenant of works. And you can see all of these pieces of how the covenant fits together there in um, creation and in that first covenant. All right, now Adam sins. He and Eve are cast out of Eden. What's the next covenant that God makes? The covenant of grace, that's right. So we have the covenant of works in Genesis, I mean, basically Genesis 1 and 2 in the first part of 3. And then in Genesis chapter 3, we're only three chapters into the Bible, and the first major covenant is broken. And now in Genesis 3, we have the covenant of grace. Now, what distinguishes the covenant of grace from the covenant of works? Just take a guess. Grace, right? I mean, yeah, that's true. So in the covenant of works, you notice we call it the covenant of works because eternal life is earned through works, right? Adam had to obey. But in the covenant of grace, notice that title has now changed. Now, in order to to earn, or not really earn, in order to get the blessings of the covenant of grace, it's no longer by works. Now it's by grace. Because someone else acting as our covenant head is going to fulfill all the conditions of the covenant for us. Jesus, as our covenant head, is going to fulfill all the conditions of the covenant of works. His perfect obedience is going to be the ground for our justification. His death on the cross is going to be the ground for our justification. You can see how this one story of the Bible is sort of weaving together here. Jesus does all that Adam couldn't do. Adam failed miserably. Jesus shows up, fulfills the covenant of works, and we receive salvation because of that in the covenant of grace. 
And so right there in Genesis 3, we have the first promise of Jesus coming. And the covenant of grace extends from Genesis chapter 3 all the way to the end of Revelation. So we are currently under the covenant of grace right now. All right? Because we are in Christ. Now notice then, the covenant of works is not the Old Testament. All right? That's very clear. The covenant of works is not the Old Testament. The covenant of works is the covenant made with Adam, which he broke. The covenant of grace begins in Genesis 3 and extends throughout the Old Testament and into the New and all the way to the consummation. All right? That's the covenant of grace. Now, here's where covenant theology can get a little bit more complicated unless you sort of have a, a, a good, solid understanding of it. And that is that within the covenant of grace, there are various sort of sub-covenants. So there are various sort of economies or, or um, particular covenants under the category of the covenant of grace. Right, we've got the covenant with Noah where God promises to preserve the world and not destroy them so that he can enact his salvation. We've got the covenant with Abraham, which is where God promises to send the Messiah through the physical descendants of Abraham and that he would make a great nation. And that doesn't refer specifically to Israel as much as it refers to the church, as much as it refers to Christians, the spiritual descendants of Abraham who would come about through the work of Christ, the seed, the offspring of Abraham, as Paul makes the case in Galatians. So those are a couple of examples, the covenant with Noah and the covenant with Abraham. Both of those are part of the covenant of grace. All right, so you want to get that. It's not like we have the covenant of grace and then covenants with Noah and Abraham and Moses and all these other people that are just totally separate. No, these are part of the covenant of grace. And what you'll notice is that in each of these sub-covenants of the covenant of grace, such as the one with Noah, the one with Abraham, you have all of these elements of the covenant present, right? These elements, the parties, the promises, the conditions, the blessings, the curses, and so on. And particularly, what has specific reference to our sacrament series right now, yes, we are getting to the sacraments, and this isn't a covenant theology course, but what has specific reference to what we're doing now is that in Scripture we see that the covenants that God makes with his people all contain signs. Much like the tree of life in the Garden of Eden, a physical representation of the spiritual reality of eternal life that Adam would receive if he fulfilled the conditions. So in all of the covenants, there is signs. Sometimes there's only one sign. Other times there's a whole lot of signs. In the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant that God made with Abraham to bring Jesus, the Messiah, what's the sign? What's the sign of the Abrahamic covenant? Anybody know? Okay, no, faith is not a sign. Faith would be the instrument by which Abraham was justified. Yeah, circumcision. There you go. See, circumcision is the physical representation of the spiritual reality promised in the covenant. Remember, what was promised in the Abrahamic covenant? It was the coming of Christ through the offspring of Abraham. And so the sign that God chose 
to be the sign of that covenant with Abraham was a sign that was applied to the male reproductive organ. Showing definitively and in a concrete and in an unforgettable way that through the process of reproduction, the Messiah would come through the line of Abraham. I guarantee you, Abraham never forgot that sign. Isaac never forgot that sign. Every male in Israel who received the sign of circumcision as part of God's covenant community never forgot that sign. That was powerful. If we back up a little bit, what was the sign of the covenant with Noah? Anybody know that one? The rainbow. Right? And the rainbow still shows up today. Right? The Noahic covenant is still in effect today. God preserving the earth, promising never to destroy it with water again. Because he has his plan of salvation that he is enacting. And he will not destroy the earth, at least not yet, until his plan is complete. So that's the sign of the Noahic covenant. Covenant with Noah, the the rainbow. Abraham is circumcision. We get to Moses, there's a whole lot of signs there, right? You could talk about the whole sacrificial system. You could talk about the Sabbath being a sign, as uh, Yahweh calls it a sign at one point. You could talk about a whole lot of different parts of the Mosaic Covenant having all kinds of signs. And then we get now, just for the sake of time, to the New Covenant. The New Covenant is the coming of the New Testament. It's, It's everything in the covenant of grace after the coming of Christ. And so, in the New Covenant, we also have covenant signs. Just like the rainbow, like circumcision, like all those sorts of things. We have signs in the New Covenant, which is what we're under right now with the coming of Jesus. What are the signs of the New Covenant? You know this. We're doing a series on them. The sacraments, right. right. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Those are the signs of the new covenant. They are the signs, the physical, outward, tangible signs of an inward spiritual reality. Right? So what we're looking at right now, according to Reformed theology, is we are looking, when we talk about baptism and the Lord's Supper, we are looking at covenant signs. And so you see now, I hope, why in the Reformed tradition we make such a huge emphasis on the Old Testament. Because if you don't understand how covenant signs work in the Old Testament, you're not going to understand how covenant signs work in the New Testament. We see this the whole Bible as one story. We need the Old Testament to understand things. Now, of course, in the New Testament, right, sometimes there are more plain statements given. We always interpret the Old Testament through the lens of the New, because the New Testament gets priority. It's the, the later revelation of God. But there's no place where we ever find in Scripture where the New Testament is going to contradict the Old Testament. And we need the Old Testament as the background and as three-fourths of God's Word to rightly understand the New Testament. And so we see the whole Bible as one story in Reformed theology. And we want to understand how covenant signs worked in the Old Testament so we can better understand how covenant signs work in the New. All right? That's the task of what basically what we're going to be doing in this series when we're in the biblical section. Right? We're going to be looking at all kinds of Old Testament passages and looking at how the covenant signs work, how the imagery of the signs work, and how that then helps us understand New Testament passages about baptism and the Lord's Supper. Right? That's our task in this series. All right, so 
Sacraments are covenant signs. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are signs of the new covenant. All right? And when we talk about the sacraments in Reformed theology, we recognize their covenant signs. But we also recognize that sacraments are covenant seals. And so maybe you've heard this language before if you've been in a Presbyterian church for any length of time. You're going to hear that baptism is a sign and seal of the new covenant. Or the Lord's Supper is a sign and seal of the new covenant. Sacraments are a sign and seal. We like to use those two words uh, a lot of times to talk about the sacraments or to talk about covenant signs. And we do that because those two words, sign and seal, describe um, various aspects of the sacraments. The sign, when we talk about you know, baptism as a sign, we're saying that it is an outward representation of a spiritual reality. And so when we, that sounds complicated, but just think about it. If, if you watch a baptism, you watch the water poured or sprinkled or over the head of a young child, or, or maybe at a Baptist church, you'll see an adult being immersed in water. What's that supposed to be a representation of? Well, it's a representation of the forgiveness of sins. Just as the blood of Christ washes away our sin, so the waters of baptism symbolize the washing away of our sin. That's the sign aspect, the outward visible reality that we can see. And for the Lord's Supper, it's something we can taste and we can touch. God is presenting his word to us in visible form, in tangible form, in a form that we can taste even in the Lord's Supper. So it's a gracious work of God here, something amazing that he gives to us. So a sacrament can be described as a sign, right? the outward reality, but a sacrament can also be described as a seal of the covenant, a seal. And what we mean when we talk about it being a seal in Reformed theology is we talk about the sacraments being what we call a means of grace. So this is what is going to begin to distinguish the Reformed view from just your, your typical Baptist view. The Baptists want to say, a sacrament, or actually they don't want to talk about a sacrament, an ordinance, or baptism, is just an outward sign. It has no spiritual significance. It is not a means of grace. Whereas for the Reformed tradition, as Presbyterians, we want to say, no, it's not just an outward sign. It is also a means of grace. And what happens when believers come and partake Of the sacraments, the sacrament as a means of grace nourishes, supports, and instructs us, and it builds our faith. And that's something that we're going to be unpacking in more detail later on in this series, particularly when we get more toward the end in our theological section. We're going to be unpacking what does it mean when we say that baptism is a means of grace, and when we talk about the Lord's Supper as a means of grace. We're saying it's more than just a sign. There is a work of the Spirit happening. It's not saving us. It's not giving us faith. It's not forgiving sins. But it is nourishing and strengthening our faith and instructing us in the Word of God and and massaging that great truth of the forgiveness of sins and of salvation deeply into our hearts and into our minds. Okay. Now, one more thing to say about the Reformed view before we end here. And that is that in the Reformed view, sacraments are not applied simply to professing believers, but they're also applied to the children 
of professing believers. That's distinctive uh, to uh, Presbyterians, and um, it may look the same if you're at a Lutheran church or at a Roman Catholic church where they're baptizing infants, and many Christians say, well, look at those Presbyterians. They're baptizing infants. They must think that that baptism is saving the child. Well, no, not necessarily. In Reformed theology, we don't baptize because we think it saves them. Rather, we have other reasons for that, and one of them is because we believe that the children of believers also are to receive the signs of the covenant, just like Isaac, when he was eight days old, received the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. All right, so that's all we have time for here. We can, we'll deal more with that question of infant baptism and wrestling with that later on and, and dealing with it more carefully later. We didn't get into the Baptist view at all this morning. That's okay. We'll deal with that next week because there's a lot of good stuff there. And once we're done with looking at the Baptist view, then we are going to be uh, moving on to our uh, looking at Scripture, which I'm sure you all are very excited to do, to actually look at what the Bible says about these things. So we'll get into that um, after next week. All right, let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for um, your word and for the sacraments, Lord. Um, Lord, these are difficult issues, and it requires careful thinking to understand your word. Um, and Lord, I pray that you would just help us to do that well, and that we would Submit to your word and seek to understand what it teaches and not what we want it to teach. Uh, Lord, I pray that you give us uh, wisdom and that you would prepare us now to worship you and to hear the preaching of your word this morning. In the holy and precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.